Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello there, Mark Kenny here in a very chilly Canberra with another top-level discussion of politics and public affairs on Democracy Sausage, which comes to you from the Australian National University. As we record this podcast, a joint production of the ANU's Policy Forum and the Australian Studies Institute, It is May 18 and thus the anniversary of the shock re-election of the Morrison Coalition Government. And what a year it's been. Very much one of two halves, I think you can say. The first half was all about the glorious march towards the first budget surplus in a dozen years, almost as if this was an end in itself and the only marker of governmental success. Then, as the millennial drought tightened its grip, morphing into the worst bushfire season on record, the climate-sceptic government stumbled. Morrison went on a secret holiday, came back under pressure, eventually showed up down at the south coast where traumatised residents gave him, as the local state MP noted, a Liberal no less, the welcome he probably deserved. And then the pandemic. Suddenly it was the owners of the back-in-black cups that were made to look a little bit like, well, mugs, as the government first threw the switch to stimulus and then went further ordering up one of the biggest public spending programs anywhere in the world. Any way you cut it, more than half of the Australian workforce is now being paid by the government, and that's before you get to free childcare and many other measures. But now, as the pandemic threat is seen to ease, the social and economic restrictions are coming off. To discuss these issues, I'm joined as always by political scientist Dr Maria Teflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations. Hi there, Maria. Hello, Mark. Hi, everyone. And in Parliament House, it's a pleasure to welcome Phil Curry, political editor of the Australian Financial Review. G'day, Phil. Hi, Mark. Hi, everybody. And it's a big welcome also to Vanessa Johnston, who is the ACT's Deputy Chief Health Officer and is also an ANU Associate Professor at the Medical School. Welcome, Vanessa. Hi, Mark and everyone. Now, let's start with you, Vanessa, because uh, you know, obviously we're, we're in the middle of this uh, pandemic and uh, the, we're seeing these restrictions just starting to ease. There's a, a more hopeful feeling around at present, but as a public health official, does that worry you at all, this, this sort of sense of optimism and ease, or, or should we be happy about it? Well, I think Australia has done a remarkable job um, in reducing the number of of cases over recent weeks. Um, And a lot of that is, you know, down to the Australian public, essentially, heeding the government message and the message of public health officials uh, and workers around the country um, to physical distance from one another as much as they can. Are heeding the directions to stay at home, to work from home if they if they can, uh, only send their kids to school if it was absolutely essential to do so. Um, so it's a great uh, public, I think, uh, and political effort. Um, and we are in a really good position now, a really great position. I guess some of the concerns I feel now, and I think some of my colleagues and, and politicians as well, and that, that that has been expressed, is that now that we slowly ease some of these restrictions, will the good work of the last couple of months continue? So while we're hoping to see less restrictions on people's social uh, and economic lives, we still have very little to fight this pandemic with. We're still relying on non-pharmacological measures. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have a therapeutic 
so we need people to, you know, maintain their physical distancing um, and really good maintenance of hand hygiene, cough and respiratory hygiene, staying away from the public ostensibly if you're sick and getting tested. So this is the new normal we live in and um, we're not sure yet whether everyone's grasped that message. Yes, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because um, there was a there was a sense. Uh, I think Phil, you probably noticed this as well earlier on in this, as we were g- going into the restrictions. There was almost a kind of a, a, an indecent hunger on the part of some people to see the most uh, draconian restrictions possible brought in. Uh, in some cases, that was justified. I think in hospitality businesses, they were they were looking for some sort of clear guidance um, to tell them what to do. But there is a sort of a sense, uh, Vanessa, is there not, that um, it's easier to have hard and fast rules and to, and to abide by them than to have um, recommendations uh, in in, restri- in respect of uh, of human behaviour, and it's it's you know it's, so you can expect more compliance when the rules are are very clear and very unambiguous. But when you get into it, this sort of stage we're in now, it's 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 a very big challenge from a public health communication point of view, trying to keep people sufficiently cognizant of the threat. Yeah, I think it is. I think, you know, back in March when we were seeing a rapid escalation in numbers of cases around the country um, and we were looking overseas and looking at what was happening in the UK and Italy and starting to happen in the US and that was very alarming with health systems being overwhelmed, there was that hunger uh, and there, there was a strong imperative, I guess, to follow the directions of uh government and public health officials at that time, we've been very successful in suppressing this epidemic in Australia, um, that we know we know what we've had to do to you know, actually get to here. And now with increased mis- mixing, we know we're going to see more cases. We're going to see outbreaks and clusters. It's how do we minimise them? Um, and it's only through the public continuing to adhere to that messaging, which is much harder in, in, a, in a time when you're not seeing those cases. Um, so, yeah, it is a much more difficult and nuanced communication message. Um, and I think we do need to lean on our colleagues in the social and behavioural sciences, um, in behavioural psychology to help us with that. Phil, did you uh, have that view going into this as we as the restrictions were being contemplated and were and were eventually adopted? That there was, um, you know, there was this kind of um, desire from a, a number of uh, public commentators. Uh, certainly on social media, there were many calls for really tough restrictions. In many cases, from people whose jobs were pretty secure and weren't going to be affected by the shutdown. But did you have a sense that uh, that was? Were you surprised by the public mood then and what do you think about what it will be like coming out of it? I think it's going to be a lot harder to come out of it than go into it. These things are always easier to start than stop. You know, definitely, Mark, at the start, um, those who are clamouring loudest to shut everything down post-host tend to have a taxpayer-funded job. Um, either They're either working in politics or for the ABC. Um uh, but there was a lot more caution. There, it wasn't an aversion, but there was a lot more caution coming from the private sector. And I know the Prime Minister himself sort of saw his role as something like a sea anchor just to try and slow the drift, you know, because, as Vanessa said, we were seeing these images from abroad, um, the catastrophic uh, events in places like Italy, the Great Britain, Spain and the United States and so forth. Um, and the government was worried about it here. They were terrified, I can Sure, you. They were terrified. They were canvassing scenarios of, um, you know, brawls, literally public brawls outside hospitals to get a bed and these sorts of things. That's how worried they were. Um, thankfully, it didn't happen due to, a, you know, um, a number of factors. Good government at both state and federal level, a good welfare system, a good health system, and, and largely a compliant, you know, uh, population. We, we, we knocked this thing on the head. But, you, you know, there was always these competing forces. I think the state's were more inclined, especially you know, Victoria and New South Wales, to move towards shutdown because health was their primary concern. The federal government has twin concerns. One is health, one the other is the economy, and Morrison was very worried. I mean, it didn't it didn't sit easy with him um, making those late-night press conferences where he was you know, using government fear to crush people's livelihoods. It, it did not sit well with the government at all. And I remember he got a lot of stick for that late Sunday night one where they, you might remember they exempted hairdressers 
for example. Mm. And all mm. these and all these smart asses then spent the next two days saying, oh, why, why, why are beauty salons or you know, nail salons closed down and hairdressers aren't? And that's because Morrison was going to the letter on the health advice he was getting. And he said, if I can keep a business open, I will. And that was an example, you know, because if, if a hairdresser can keep his or her job, that's one less person on job seeker. That's one more family that's not dependent on welfare. So that was the attitude going in, I think. You know, but he couldn't put the public health at risk. And I think now coming out, trying to unwind the, um, you know, the economic destruction uh, is going to be very difficult because, the, as Vanessa said, the virus is still very much with us. It's just as dangerous today as it was at Easter time. Uh, and it's it's more of you now. We've got to live with this thing probably like our parents lived with polio. You know, you're just going to have to live and operate amongst it and try and minimise its spread. But just going back on that on that to that messaging point you made about you know hairdressers and nail salons and so mm. forth. And yes, the prime minister had this very strong focus on the economy as well as the health. And and yes, the states were you know who run the health systems after all were uh, you know very focused on on the health thing. But messaging was also mm. important. And if the if the uh, logic of um, of restrictions was to be observed, or if let me put it another way, if restrictions were to be observed, then people needed to understand their basic mm. logic. And the trouble with having those kinds of differentiations between nail salons and 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 hairdressers mm. and and some other things is that it eroded public confidence in there being a unifying logic. Yes, and I think that actually needed to be taken into account. Oh, you're right, and and if there's one prime criticism early on, I think, was their messaging overall. But you've got to remember the government didn't know what it was doing either. No one, as someone said to me at that stage, we were true, still trying to find the bottom. Um, we didn't know where the bottom was. They, they, were, they were in as much free fall in trying to deal with this as anyone else. Uh, if you remember, you know, two months ago they released a $17.6 billion stimulus package thinking that'll do it. Two days later, mm-hmm. they realised no, this is you know, there's no bottom to this, and they had to cut. And That's where they saw those doll cues pictures. Uh, yeah, well, they had to roll another sixty-six yeah. billion out seven days later, and then a hundred and thirty billion out another. And so that's a nice metaphor for you know what it's like trying to. There's just no government's ever had to handle anything like this for a government to actually go in and actively shut down an economy. So. I, I was sort of not as critical as others. Maybe it was because I was close up, very close up. I was watching this from the inside almost and watching them grapple with this and try and work out, you know, what to do. I mean, every, everything was anathema to the instinct of any politician. You know, any, anyone comes into this place, whether you're Green, National, Liberal, Labor, trying to generate jobs and prosperity. And for, yeah. for, for governments to take decisive decisions to kill that, you know, it was it was just everything was on its head. Everything was counterproductive, counter counterintuitive, and so that, that, their heads are in as much of a spin as the rest of ours. I, I, I suggest you go look at Scott Morrison's demeanour that Sunday night at the hairdresser press conference. Uh, you know, he'd just been through the ringer that day at national cabinet, and you know the whole thing wasn't weighing easily with him. So yes, you're right. The messaging was inconsistent, but um, and there was a lot, you know, people were saying, well, how come I can do this, but I can't do that? And you can still make those examples. There's a million examples. But, you know, I think it just required a tolerance from everybody. Um, but at the end, you judge on results. And I think you've got to say both state and federal governments have done a good result knocking this thing off. Vanessa, the um, point Phil makes about messaging is, is an important one. Uh, I saw, uh, you know, that known... Um, misogynist, misanthrope, however you like to describe him, uh, Sam Newman, uh, having a lash at at, uh, da- um, at uh, Daniel Andrews the other day on the golf tee, uh, you know, saying that it, had, you know, the ban on golf had never been about health, but it was about consistency and simplicity of message. As a as a public health public health official, I guess you're you're um you would agree with that point. Yeah, absolutely, and I'd agree with Phil in terms of how rapidly. Um, both government officials and politicians had to move uh, to action this um, so that, you know, there was this tension between keeping the message as simple as possible so that people could follow it, um, that, you know, there wasn't a lot of time for um, nuance um, and, and there was always going to be those scenarios come out like you know why why hairdressers are no na- not nail salons and etc cetera, etc cetera. so i agree it was it was a a very challenging time where you know 
the word unprecedented has been thrown around far too much um, during this. An unprecedented number of times. (laughs) But really, you know, no one in our lifetime had grappled with this scenario. Um, We had, there was no rule book. Um, So for the government officials providing that advice, uh, we're, you know, working off basic first principles of public health, but there was not a lot of time to, you know, um, nuance that messaging or work it up or focus test it or, you know, whatever is generally done. Um, so, yeah, it was about keeping the message simple, um, noting that there were always going to be these inconsistencies. Can we just jump in? I think one of the problems, Mark, that exacerbated that going into this was a lack of trust in you know, you know, the institutional trust in government, um, which has been a you know a common and building phenomenon now for several years. So we've got to this stage where the government said, "Look, just trust us. We're acting on expert advice. Do it." And there was, you know, and fueling the sort of cynicism about the lack of messaging and stuff was just this: well, "Why should we listen to you?" Being you know, if you just go back as recently as sports rules or something like that, you know, there's just been this sort of loss of faith in government and institutions more broadly, and so. The government was asking us to, you know, place enormous trust in them and, and, and just do what we say, do it quickly, don't ask questions. This is an emergency and, and there was, this, I think, probably a stronger level of hesitancy than there may have been 10, 20 years ago to something like this. Um, and that, that I think that fueled to uh, the questioning some of the decisions. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Did you, you've spoken a bit about this trust issue, Maria, um, and uh, I guess that's very much a, a factor going into this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um so we know from uh, survey data that uh, trust is on a downward trend in Australia and has been for at least a decade. Um, what's kind of important to understand about levels in trust in Australia is that they are actually, generally speaking, were very, very high. And they also tended to correct um, after changes of government. And that's something that we haven't really seen this decade, which sort of goes to this long running problem with um, trust overall. Uh, And you can kind of see that in some of the discussions around the responses to government. So uh, whilst uh, the Prime Minister has absolutely received a popularity uh, boost in his figures, which sort of mirrors what's sort of happening around the world, you will sort of see um, different groups uh, sort of attribute success to the coronavirus to potentially different levels of government depending on their partisan uh, feelings. So, so people who don't necessarily support Scott Morrison are more likely to say, well, it was all because of the premiers. When, um, you know, uh, the, the, the real picture is clearly somewhere in the middle as a collective enterprise. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, uh, the Federation's been very favourably reviewed, I guess, in terms of this crisis because it's long been regarded as, you know, pretty dysfunctional, a difficult uh, uh, division of powers and responsibilities that uh, is more known for its friction and inefficiency than uh, for its cooperation. But that's all been put aside because of this singular threat. The, The states have overwhelmingly been the ones to make the sort of decisions that actually affect people, you know, they run the police forces, they run the education system, the hospitals and the like, um, the sporting codes even, you know, uh, the venues, these sorts of things. It's been a really good reminder, particularly, I guess, um, to people on the East Coast, uh, that we do live in a federation and that uh, further to that, if we actually did abolish the states, which is still, you know, a popular catch cry, that, um, you know, literally life as we know it would grind to a halt. So so from a civics perspective, um, I'm very happy that uh, at least this this sort of understanding of our different tiers of government um, is is sort of perhaps being better understood. Um, so happy days there. Now, Vanessa, one of the things that we have often heard throughout this, for obvious reasons, is the um, the comparison with wartime, uh, there being, you know, a, 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 an external existential threat and the need for us all to change our lives. Um, it, it's often made me think about uh, blackout curtains, for example. Uh, it was incumbent upon people and indeed was the law as well in, in, in London and other places uh, and, and Paris and, and Germany for the citizens to uh, have blackout curtains and to not have anything that could give away the location of the city. And I guess people had a pretty strong incentive, along, as well as the law, they had a pretty strong incentive not to want to become the target of, uh, of bomb attacks. 
that's the challenge, isn't it? Uh, you know, you have to have that link. People need to understand the cause and effect of uh, of particular decisions. So, how hard is it to devise rules uh, for policymakers that make that kind of sense? I mean, how do you arrive, for example, at a number like uh, ten for the maximum number of uh, people that can gather in a group, which is uh, you know pretty much the the social restriction that exists at the moment? How do you arrive at that number? And I guess, um, you know, how to, what, what sense can people make of that? Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting analogy with war. I think what's different in this pandemic is about how much is still so unknown about this virus. So as you said, there was a really good incentive for the whole population, um, during the world wars to participate in trying to keep their location, um, you know, secret from the enemy. It was very clear what bombs and guns and, you know, were likely to do. In this mm. instance, we're still dealing with a virus that we only know a little about. Um, and that makes uh, devising policy and communicating about that policy really challenging. I guess in addition, we do know that, you know, it seems to be that about 80% of people that get this virus um, get it to quite a mild degree. It's like an influenza-like illness. But 20% are going to be severely impacted. And that's not the same across all demographic groups. So the people that are most at risk from this virus are the elderly, um, people that have uh, a range of chronic medical conditions, and more vulnerable groups that either are living in overcrowded situations or don't have the same um, access to health services. So there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of the community are needing to uphold these, um, these measures, uh, these directions, um, ultimately for the benefit of those that are at more high risk. Um, so it's quite a different scenario. So I guess I'd just say that um, at the outset. Um, I think in terms of how these numbers are arrived at, um, I don't sit on AHPPC, so I sit on the Communicable Disease Network Australia that is uh, the committee, the technical committee that reports to AHPPC. So it's AHPPC that have ultimately advised uh, the Prime Minister and the National Cabinet. There isn't any magic um, behind these numbers. Ultimately, we need to com communicate a number. Um, you know, when we were really worried about where we were heading in Australia, we just needed to reduce the number of people that were mixing at any one time um, to reduce the transmission and to assist us in our contact tracing when people um, were being infected and, and public health units were, you know, increasingly being overwhelmed. Um, so I can't exactly tell you how that number was, uh, how was arrived at, but it's, it, it was a number that was thought to be workable at the time. Um, similarly, as we increase, um, um, you know, our mixing in the ACT, we're starting with, you know, cafes and restaurants to a maximum of 10 and, then hopefully 50, then 100, and, you know, various uh, governments around the, the world have their, their, you know, roadmap getting back to normal activities. And those numbers are just about slowly, a slow graduation up to what would be normal business as usual um, at a manageable pace so that we can assess each escalation um, based on, you know, number of new cases in the intervening period and outbreaks and clusters and the like. I was just going to say, well, if it makes you feel any better, Vanessa, um, government's had a hard time corralling people to act uh, during World War II as well. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> yes, yes. So laws had to be passed and, you know, governments uh, had a heavy hand on, like they basically could order people to work in any kind of factory that was required. Mm. So mm. so there you go. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure, I mean, we're, you know, it's, it's really hard to... Um, <laughs> human behavior as we all know but I just think um, it's quite a different scenario it's 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 an analogy that's used but I think it's a very different scenario yes now we're going to talk a little bit more after the break uh, about 
Scott Morrison's first year and, and, and I suppose some of the political aspects of the crisis we're in as well. But just before we go to that break, Vanessa, I wonder if you could speak to what is your main concern now? I mean, obviously, one of those will be the prospect of a second wave and you know subsequent infections. Um, but also, I believe you're concerned about people not access, you know, like primary health problems that are not being addressed now because people are not going to hospitals or not going to see their doctor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in relation to the COVID-19 epidemic, uh, our, our main concerns are the degree to which we can get community buy-in um, to continue to hear, adhere to some of these, you know, basic infection control measures as we start releasing um, the restrictions on their lives and the degree to which they can mix with others and the impact that will have on a potential second wave um, into the future. So I guess that's from the COVID-19 perspective. But um, the health versus economic arguments never been mutually exclusive you know there's huge um, health impacts from the kind of economic hardships that people have been experiencing and these have always you know been front of mind as well for public health officials as they've you know recommended these things Um, we know that people that you know without a job that have you know low income there's huge health ramifications for that Um, So that's always got to be balanced. And then there are the unintended consequences that we're worried about arising from uh, the recent period, I guess, of shutdown, but also um, because we think we're going to have a protracted time of physical distancing in the community. Um, We know and we hear anecdotally that presentations to emergency departments and primary care is way down than we would otherwise see at this time of year. Um, And part of that's a function of reduced circulating, you know, influenza and respiratory viruses, which is a a good news story from this. Um, But the other is that, you know, people have very real fears about leaving their house or attending a healthcare facility where they they might be scared to get uh, COVID-19. But at the same time, that means there are other chronic health conditions um, and the preventative uh, care that they would have sought for those um, is, you know, going uh, unheeded. So there are real risks to uh, morbidity and mortality arising from other health conditions uh, not associated with COVID-19 in that scenario as well. So it's it's an ongoing um, delicate tightrope walk really um, to try and manoeuvre through this epidemic while having the, you know, the least possible impact on the economy and the wider health of the population. And so much of it, of course, uh, is, uh, you know, we don't find out whether it's worked or what effect it's had until some time later. There's lag. These are sort of lag indicators. I mean, even the virus itself, uh, between when you pick it up and when you exhibit symptoms, if you do, and uh, and so forth, you know, there's that big lag time. So mm. uh, all of these decisions are sort of made to some degree in the dark, and it must be a, a very difficult challenge for policymakers. Let's take a quick break there, and uh, when we come back, talk a bit more about Scott Morrison's political year. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Now, Phil Curry, when Scott Morrison was elected a year ago today as we record this, um, 
you know, it was all it was all about the economy. Really, it was about delivering those tax cuts that he'd promised, and then really, you know, the government's agenda was jobs and growth and balancing the budget. You know, that that pretty much framed it. There were a few other things that they they picked up subsequently from you know defeats in the previous term, like the ensuring integrity bill. But it was a pretty thin agenda, and the first half, I suppose, of this twelve months period uh, was dedicated to a lot of those things. As I said in the introduction, you know, they had the back in black mugs and all that sort of stuff. But it's really been, trans. everything's been transformed by this COVID crisis and, uh, and indeed the bushfire crisis that, that preceded it. And, um, and in some ways, if the bushfire crisis was a disaster for Scott Morrison in a lot of ways, uh, but in, in, in many other ways, um, he, he's been made, his prime ministership in this term has been made by this crisis now. Uh, so far, yeah. I mean, the, the thinness of their agenda going into the election on simplicity was actually, in political terms, it's genius because it was just really yeah. sim- simple. Keep your taxes low and leave you alone. Um, whereas Labor just just completely overwhelmed people with ideas and proposals. A lot of which scared people. You know, Labor started pick fights with half a dozen various constituencies, um, hoping that the sort of you know, the large majority out there would agree with them. So. I think, look, Morrison spent so much effort getting into it. Was, yeah, they, they weren't supposed to win that election. He, he was never of that view, but most others in his own side and Labor side and elsewhere of that view. So to him, it just became a Herculean exercise to prove everyone wrong and win that election, which he did do. Mm-hmm. And I think it wasn't just that, Mark, after he took over from Turnbull in August 18, he had to rebuild the government and then win an election all, all in you know, nine months. So... They spent so much effort on that process. They were a bit like the dog that caught the car on election day. They think, oh, now what do we do? You know, um, mm. so they didn't have an agenda really. I mean, they just had the same, you know, keep the economy strong, return the budget to surplus, which isn't, you know, an insignificant plan, but they didn't really know how to do it. And I think there was quite legitimately a few questions in the months after the election on what are you going to do next? And the government itself was doing these policy deep dives, you know, where you spend a weekend trapped in a basement with experts and throw all these ideas around. And, you know, Morrison was quite cognizant of the fact he needed an agenda to take to the next election. He wasn't just going to sit there and do nothing. Then I think the next significant thing in the year uh, that was was the bushfires. And it was significant because he he misread it so poorly. Now, this bloke is a political animal. He's political down to his bootstraps. He was a former party secretary, you know, I think Malcolm Turnbull summed him up very well in his book, you know, apart from his sort of religiously ensconced views against same-sex marriage and stuff, there's really not a lot Morrison has a conviction about. You know, he, he's the ultimate political pragmatist. And for him to so badly misread a national crisis like that, a crisis which gave him an opportunity to, to prove himself, you know, to prove his, you know, it was, it was so out of character for him to go on that holiday to Hawaii and then to come back and just be a, a real stumble bump for the next two or three weeks as he tried to deal himself back in. And I know he was really down on himself. How, how can I be so stupid? Yeah, he was really down on himself after the way he mishandled that. And then, of course, came the COVID crisis. And two things happened there. A, he wasn't going to repeat the bushfire mistake. So you could see right from the get-go, he did exactly what he didn't do in the fires. He listened to the experts, you know, which he didn't do yeah. in the fires, and he acted quickly and preemptively. If you look at uh, when Australia decided to call this a pandem- pandemic and while the World Health Organization was still, you know, dipping its lid to China and refusing to call it that. And we got quite a bit of criticism for that, if you remember, from, from the WHO and others. And we brought in travel bans. We stopped Chinese people coming from China to Australia other than residents and citizens. Um, and again, we got criticised for doing that. Uh, so he acted preemptively and he listened to the experts and, and he did, he did what he's good at doing. He manages a crisis. Uh, he's good at solving problems, Morrison. He's not a visionary. You know, you wouldn't call him a, you know, a great lateral thinker, policy thinker, but he's very good at fixing things, uh, rising to challenges. And I, and I, as you said, I think this is sort of, this will, will, it could undo him, but it could also make him as Prime Minister now, not just the initial handling of the crisis, but charting a way out of economic quagmire. Yeah, so Phil, I guess one of the things I want to know is, Scott Morrison has been really um, emphasising the idea that he's not interested in old ideas, he's interested mm. in new ideas, um, which I think is interesting rhetorically, but... What happened to these policy deep dives? Because as you and I know that, mm. you know, virtually every reform idea actually has a very long gestation period. Mm. So 
I mean, are they dusting off these deep dives or who are they listening to? Well, they're just on the shelf at the moment, Marie. I mean, there were things like um, there were things in the energy sphere, um, things like the plastics in the ocean. Remember, the, the, uh, yeah, he unraveled, uh, unrolled that at the UN last year. They weren't real hardcore economic, you know, mainstream reform ideas because he was of the view, remember, he wasn't going to break any election promises in industrial relations. He wasn't going to make any changes unless they were evidence-based. He wasn't going to do anything that was ideological. So that was his, you know, that was his warning shot to the, the IR ideologues in, in his ranks. Don't, don't expect us to have another run at work choices. Um, tax reform, we're not touching the GST. We're not, you know, increasing taxes. They're the sorts of things now that he says we have to have a fresh look at, IR, tax reform, stuff like that, although I don't believe they'll go near the GST. The deep dives are really sort of tangential things, you know, Trying, trying to, you know, whilst keeping a steady tiller on the economy, because before this we were going to sort of come back to surplus and we're going to implement the, the income tax cuts that have already been legislated and everything was just going to hum along economically. Um, the other stuff is just to sort of keep people interested. They're, they're all now very much secondary issues, although you'll find as we emerge from the COVID crisis, energy is going to be a huge part of it, uh, especially gas, uh, reliance on gas on the East Coast, both to generate power and to drive industry, and they're working quite hard on making sure that gas price stays depressed um, as, a as a transition fuel towards renewables, but also um, for, for medium-term industry and power usage. But can I just bring you in, Vanessa, on this just because I wanted to uh, get your uh, view about something Phil just mentioned there when he was talking about the declaration of the pandemic, um, which which was done a fortnight before the WHO uh, and uh, the travel bans with China and some other places as well. How decisive do you think they were in Australia's good story to now about uh, this pandemic? Uh, are they the two key national decisions that were taken in your view or would you nominate something else? I think the travel vans were hugely significant. Um, you know, when we saw China initially, you know, close its borders, I think the world was quite stunned. You know, again, not in really living memory has a country closed its borders to try and um, contain uh uh, an outbreak in their country and try and prevent it from spreading to other countries. I think China really understood that, um, had learned the lessons from the SARS outbreak of 2003 um, and was really um, very proactive, I guess, in coming forward um, to the rest of the country, to the rest of the world uh, with their cases. Um, and I think for a long time, a lot of us didn't ever believe that Australia would close its borders, particularly to, you know, its allies in the US and the UK. So um, but when it was became apparent that that was what was needed, um, you know, they did it. And um, it has been the thing, I think, that has really helped us to get on top of this because at that time really the vast majority of our cases were um, overseas related and uh, increasingly so, you know, just towards the time that the borders closed, they were, you know, they were all coming from the US and the UK. And um, so, you know, we knew the, the angst that that potentially would cause. Um, but I think by then even the US had closed its borders. I can't remember the succession of events. Um, so it was very forward-leaning and I think um, was really um, was really one of the things that, uh, has proved very successful and will be the the last thing you know that will that will need to go really um, the time does that mean it will be with us for a year I, could it could it be that I long? think we've yeah. got no idea but I think as Phil said it's going to be quite some time um, that'll be the last thing you're going to it's going to be the last won't, thing won't be, won't be this side of Christmas. So while domestic travel hopefully uh, will start again and those jurisdictions that have shut their borders will and they're starting to put timeframes around reop reopening them to the rest of Australia and, and that's great, I, I think it's going to be a long time before we see those international borders reopen. In terms of calling the pandemic early, I think that was one of the Deputy uh, Chief Medical Officers that did that. I mean, I think I don't know that that made such a it didn't have a significant impact on where our policies were going. Um, 
I know it did uh, attract some criticism from the WHO, um, but ostensibly, you know, when Australia called it, you know, the, the definition was, it, the definition's clear and it was. Uh, everyone was just waiting for the WHO to declare it. Uh, but I don't think that in and of itself uh, had a major impact on the general policy direction that we were already going in. But I suppose that it goes to what we were talking about before, and that is, you know, consistency of message and also, uh, you know, setting up the, the, you know, the, the an appropriate framework within which to justify the individual decisions, the, the, the individual levers that you're pulling as policymakers and if that is seen to be an option, that it could be called a pandemic, but you're not taking that option, then that's that's a decision in itself. It's not a non-decision. It feels like a decision, and it undermines uh, perhaps the um, uh, the you know the, the the perception of how big this crisis is. So I think it did have a strong rhetorical uh, justification within Australia, and that's what everyone was waiting for the WHO to do as well. Which, of course, the WHO eventually then did a couple of weeks later. Well, Mark, I think, too, it made the public sit up and take notice. It was yeah, the well, that's yeah, sort of my point, yeah, really. Yeah. yeah, the government went, oh, actually, this, most people hadn't really sort of taken this thing seriously to that point outside the medical and political profession, but they weren't aware of its potential or how bad it could be or, you know, everyone just thought it was a flu going around. But, yeah, so it may not have had any practical effect because the government had pretty much gone into pandemic mode in late January anyhow. You know, the headlines the next day, I think that's it was an important part of, getting the public ready for what was coming down the track. Yeah, I suppose Maria, that's right. What about, yeah. uh, Maria, what about uh, this um, decision to pursue uh, an independent international investigation into the origins of the virus in China? No one across the political spectrum is arguing that this is unreasonable and, indeed, that seems to be the first defence that anyone puts up whenever you ask any questions about it. They say, well, it's unremarkable. Of course, we want to know the origins of the virus, and that's true. Um, but uh, is the middle of a the biggest, deepest, most unpredictable economic crisis in a century uh, the right time to be a front runner on it? I mean, for example, could Scott Morrison have pursued the result of getting an independent inquiry without occasioning quite as much attention on Australia per se in the process? What do you think about that? Well. Whether or not um, government's foreign policy decisions are actually driven by geostrategic considerations versus domestic politics is one of the oldest questions in uh, international uh, relations. And I think it kind of goes to some of the criticisms that Morrison has um, faced. And uh, there is news today that uh, a coalition is being kind of uh, crafted within the sort of governing council thingy of the queue today. Um, and in, so in that regard, he's been quite lucky, actually, that, um, you know, what was effectively quite a risk to uh, go out on a limb without necessarily having built a, co- a coalition of supporters quietly behind the scenes um, is at the moment working out um, well for him. But I think we have seen that um, China is unafraid of being punitive with its neighbours. Um, you know, we see this with actions in v- Vietnam and other places in uh, Asia where it deals with neighbours and border disputes and access to resources. And we see that with the, um, you know, bans on certain abattoirs and the sort of, you know, looming trade war on wheat and barley exports. So I think actually the long run on this will is yet to actually be fully realised and whilst I think he certainly had um, a win or likely to have a win today, I kind of do hope that he does sort of recalibrate the his sort of strategy a bit and perhaps do things a little bit more quietly um, as we kind of go forward into the into the future. But it really does call into question about the fact that Australia has spent a long time avoiding really trying to work out exactly what its strategy is uh, between Asia and between China and the US. And, I, you know, I think that in the next decade that will no longer be something that we can kind of defer and sort of say, well, we can be friends with with both. The situation is becoming – there's less scope for Australia to manoeuvre in that direction or in that sort of open space. Mm, no, Maria's right. I mean, 
Morrison has inherited a relationship where there's pressure to choose. If you go back you know, to the Howard years when he was, we were building this trade relationship, you know, the previous decade, you know, everyone was getting rich off each other. And we had, you know, as John Howard said, one of his three crowning achievements was elevating the relations with Beijing and Washington simultaneously, but he could do that. Um, and, and, you know, over successive prime ministers, you know, the Labor years and through, you know, Zabbitt once aptly defined the China relationship as a constant contest between greed and fear. Um, I think, <laughs> yeah, and I think he was the first one to start feeling the squeeze. You know, we've we've gotten to the point with China where they've got us where they want us. So that you know, we're not the only country like this um, where they get you over a barrel economically and they start using economic coercion. So, uh, you know, that 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 dependency built during the Howard years to our great, um, you know, to a great success, and we all got rich off it and so forth. But here's the, here's the, here's the trade off now, and you, we've got the point. We've got the trade minister. As he said on Sunday, um, you know, we've got to get away from the Chinese market. You've got to diversify. Now, sort of, we're welcome to where a lot of other countries have been for some time and others like Canada, France and Germany are finding themselves now as well. Uh, it, you know, you can't choose anymore. You're always under constant pressure to choose. And, you know, the last half a dozen times I've been overseas with the PM, you know, whether it's been the G20s or the UN or it doesn't matter where you go, all you end up is talking about China. You, know, you can yeah. be in Chicago or you can be in you know, Jakarta or whatever, and you give the same speech. You know, we're not here to choose. We don't feel the need to choose, but you know, China very much wants you to choose. Um, but they, they understand we have a, a strong security and values relationship with the US. Um, but you know, they, they you know they just get very very sensitive about it all. The US is the same. The US is putting huge pressure on us too. It's not just coming from one way. Culver House Jr., the United States ambassador, said back at March at what he thought was a private dinner, said it was about five of us in the audience, that they were going to lean on Australia to start boosting what, what Morrison called the step up, the Pacific step up, you know, which is sort of try and thwart Chinese influence in, in the Pacific Islands. And Culver House wanted us to push that strategy deeper into Asia. So we're being pushed by both nations to choose, um, and, it's, and, it's, and the vice is typing, and this is what we're seeing with these trade sanctions from China. I don't call it a trade war because in a war both sides fire each other. Yeah, I agree. We have no intention of trying to aggravate this or or indulge this, but, um, you know, this is just straight-out economic coercion. This is China saying, back off, back off from your... um, you know, your demand and inquiry, back off from, you know, we're still angry about the Huawei decision. We're still angry about, you know, you took measures to stop us dumping steel into your market. Uh, we're going to start hurting you. And they, they do that. And they try and drive a wedge. They, they target sectors. You know, they went after the corn growers in the US to try and turn them against Trump. They'll go after the barley farmers here, the, you know, the meat exporters, that sort of thing. It's, it's all very strategic and quite insidious. And you've just, you know, it, it is, it is. But bearing in mind how important China was during the GFC, mm. I mean, the two things that uh, saved Australia during the GFC that where everyone else went into recession mm. was our, our extraordinary stimulus spending, which was, mm. you know, viscerally criticised by this current government, I might say, you know, when they were in opposition. Yeah. Um, and 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 consistently for the last decade since, you know. Um, uh, but the other thing, of course, was uh, the fact that China kept on growing, kept on buying our exports, mm. and so because of our interlinking with that economy, uh, you know, we were helped. Uh, in fact, if you listen to the Liberals, it was only China. And then you get to this crisis, um, and. Um, and, and and it seems to me, I, I guess what I'm talking about here is not the substance of whether there's a justification for this inquiry, but whether we needed to be seen to be the ones pushing it. I mean, there's 190 other countries that might make a case for it, or as Maria said, uh, you know, some sort of coalition could have been got up that uh, we didn't weren't, weren't seen to particularly own. Yeah, We've taken a, a pretty big risk, I would have thought. Yeah, well, that, that's certainly the, you know, that's the case. The business community is pushing, you know, we've got, we got more to lose than most others, you know, in terms of... You know, annoying these people. So, yeah, why did you do that? I think it is a you know, legitimate thing. Morrison sees it as a as a values thing. He also sees it as, you know, Turnbull was a bit like this with China. You don't back down and you, and you do. Well, he um, handled that so well too. Yeah, but, look, <laughs> I, you know, and, but, but, but beneath that, Mark, you know, when you talk about China and, and the value to the economy, I think underpinning what the government's doing is this knowledge that never say it publicly that, you know, that the Chinese are still going to be dependent on our iron ore and our coal, especially our coking coal. And, and even on barley, they need our malting barley. So there's, I think there's an element of bluff, um, bluff calling going on here as well uh, right. with what's going on. But, you know, you've got to be careful. I know the government is of the view that, you know, 
this was six months ago, that China could put us into recession overnight if they wanted, if they really wanted. But uh, I think they take these positions safe in the knowledge, you know, those real, really um, valuable exports like iron ore, which hit $7 billion in a month in March, aren't going to get affected by these sort of things. They'll, they'll fiddle at the edges, which is no good if you're a beef grower or a wine grower or something, a winemaker or something. But, um, you know, these are decisions they have to make. But, yeah, clearly the Kerry Stokes of the world and the Twiggy Forests are saying, well, why do you keep provoking China? Well, well, get Trump to call for an investigation. Don't do it yourself. Yeah, that's the the exact reaction that they're looking to provoke, right? Mm. Yeah. Now, look, uh, we're we're getting uh, short of time here, so but there's a couple of quick things I want to cycle through, uh, Phil, in particular, um, but but the, uh, to you others as well. Um, one is that uh, just looking at Morrison uh, overall. It, it occurs to me that he is the first Prime Minister this century, this might sound like a staggering statistic, but he's the first Prime Minister this century to have actually had time and capacity to grow in the job and to actually do it, assuming that we're talking about some sort of uh, trans, you know, some learning and some sort of transformation of him in this COVID crisis. Um, if you think about it, the last PM to actually do that successfully was John Howard in 1996-98. And beyond, uh, every PM since then has not made it to the next election. Yeah, <laughs> well, you're right. Well, 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 Morrison is. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He's a twin beneficiary of the chaos that Julia Gillard started ten years ago in June. Um, he's a beneficiary on two fronts: a because the public's so damn sick of it, it's not going to happen again for a while. Yeah, he's under no risk whatsoever. Um, but he also used that chaos to get into the job. I mean, he's, 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 he's as cunning as an outhouse rat. You know, this bloke, you know, as someone said, you know, he'll, he'll follow you into a revolving door and come out first and you won't know how he's done it, you know. Um, <laughs> you know he, so he sort of ri- he rides the decade of chaos to take the top job, then changes the rules so no one can do it to him, you know, inside the Liberal Party. They've got rid of those anti-leadership you know, leadership dumping rules. Um, but also he's been blessed because all, all the buffoons, you know, that have basically torn the Liberal Party apart for 10 years, you know, Turnbull and, and Abbott and, and their respective lieutenants have all left. And so he's got this period of remarkable calm inside the caucus. Like, you wouldn't know this is a one-seat majority, would you? It just doesn't feel like it. I mean, this yeah. government's tenuous as its three or four predecessors, but it doesn't feel that way because there's such a stability inside the coalition now. We yeah, nationals aside, um, that's just their own sort of sideshow. But, no, I, I agree. I think he's, you know, he's well, you, you never say never anymore, but he's looked more stable, I think, than anyone for a long time, um, you know. Can I ask you, Phil? Mm. Um, sure. You know, given given we know that he's a real political animal, that he's an optimist, so he never really gives up. But that he, when it comes to um, you know policy, he's he's not really that's not his set of strengths. No. And and given given that we're about to you know go through uh, quite clearly um, a lot of change, no matter what. Mm. Do you, how do you think he will navigate that? You know, well, I, think, does- I think Maria has been blessed. He's been gifted an agenda. Yeah, he didn't have one, and one's been handed to him. You know, fix this. I mean, there is no bigger agenda <laughs> facing any leader in the world. And I mean, if he had to—that's what we were saying a bit earlier—if he had to just sit there and think of a reason to you know, re-elect the coalition for a fourth term, I mean, they're going for a fourth term at the next election. They're, they're going for a, a period in government longer than the Howard government. Now, when you when you think about how long they've been in, and and I don't think I don't think the next election was a lay down by any by any uh, chance. I still don't think it is, but I think he's in a lot better position now. But what will be crucial will be the next six months. Um, yeah, the, the October budget and then beyond that, because that will be an agenda we haven't seen. You know, Morrison himself says we need something as big and as bold as the Hawke Keating reforms of the eighties and nineties. That's the size we need now. So there's, you know, we're back to a you know, sort of turning economic policy on its head and basically starting from scratch. So he won't need to be sort of seen as a visionary. This thing's going to be forced on him and he's going to use it as an excuse. So uh, that will be, you know, that will be his, that will define him, I think, as a prime minister and it will decide whether he gets another term of the job. And what about Labor? There's a little bit of chat around. It's pretty low level, admittedly, but a little bit of chat around about uh, Anthony Albanese's leadership uh, and uh, the performance, strong performance of Jim Chalmers, who we've had on the podcast recently. Anything in any of this? Not really, Mark. I mean, you know, I think Albo's actually done a really good job to keep Labor noticed at the moment. You know, he did a very good job in the bushfires. He got down there and he stood out and everything he said the government had to end up doing, you know, like paying the firefighters and things like that. Now, you don't get many points for that. 
but trying to be noticed in a crisis of this scale is just unimaginable. You remember 9-11, you know, just Kim Beasley just fell off the radar and lost the election. So I think they've done well. Albanese is good at laying down markers, you know, won't be too critical, but just point it out when he sees it and then, and then seek vindication later. But Like wage subsidy, for example. Wage subsidies, um, yeah, a whole bunch of things, you know, um, of deficiencies. And you'll see as, as the crisis folds, people will start to become more critical and notice the flaws of labour will be pointing those out. So that's why I just don't think he could have done any more. I think um, Scott Morrison has kind of recognised this. I mean, it's interesting there's a, a piece in The Australian Today which is sort of talking up, you know, the the very vague agenda that is like Morrison's new accord. And what is kind of actually interesting is that there's actually more in that article about Morrison criticising Labor for mm. potentially being uninterested in cooperating, for like reflexively being anti-Tory and going into that mode than there is anything about this potential new agenda. I think mm. it sort of reflects the way Morrison has sort of sought to cut the opposition out of discussions and they're sort of preemptively trying to define everything that they may say about the government's mm. economic agenda going forward as inherently negative. I, I thought that was very revealing. Well, a bit of both. I mean, he, he is a brawler, but you've got to remember last week in Parliament too, we saw Labor draw battle lines, no no trickle-down economics, <laughs> you know, so already mm. sort of putting the government on notice on industrial relations, industrial relations and corporate tax reform. So I, mean, I think both sides have been a bit guilty of that, to be honest, Maria. They've both started drawing lines in the sand even before we've had one, one substantial policy proposal. So, uh, you know, maybe... Well, it goes to the illusion that this is actually going to be some kind of coming together moment when it's clearly going to be a vicious fight. Yeah, sadly, that's the way it's looking. But it needs to be a coming yeah. together. It actually needs to be a coming together moment because uh, we're stuffed if it isn't. And Phil, uh, the the cliff, you know, the mm. um, the end of mm. job seeker and job keeper, that's not possible, surely. I mean, leave aside economically for a moment. That's not politically viable, is it? To just have no. all of this extraordinary assistance and it just ends. It's going to be really tough, isn't it? I, I can't see them sort of on October 1 sending new start back to 40 bucks a day, especially when your unemployment rate is still going to be around 9 or 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're going to get a second spike in unemployment because once – I think JobKeeper has to end. It's just too expensive. Um, you just but they have to find some other way of propping up. I mean, we, you can't well, have a second wave economic crisis no, but what, 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 leaving what, what, aside the pandemic. No, you can't, but you will. You will get a second spike because what will happen, JobKeeper will end and there's just going to be a whole bunch of businesses which aren't going to, you know, aren't going to survive. They're just going to, just going to fold their tent or they're just going to take on, take back half the staff they had. So all those people who but are that, on job, that's a job recipe keeper, for they'll losing go on the job seeker. Sorry? Sorry, that's a recipe for losing the election though. Well, it may be, but the election's still two years off. Um, but I think you're going to see a second unemployment spike before Christmas where job seeker either gets tapered down or, or switched off. It's just so expensive. Um, then just not, Or they might cut back the size of the payments. But either way, uh, they're going to have a heap more people on the coffee scroll uh, for October than there are now. <laughs> I mean, remember, as, as Treasury said, they said unemployment's going to hit 10% in June, but if it weren't for job seeking, it would hit 15%. So it gives you an indication. You could see the unemployment rate increase by 50% once JobKeeper gets switched off. That's well, right. Alan half half was making of all the of point. Australian employees are on jobs. Keeper, yeah, more than right? half. In fact, Alan Kohler was making yeah. the point on uh, ABC News uh, last night that uh, if you actually took all of the people on yeah. job seeker and the people on job keeper, the unemployment rate would be fifty eight. Well, well, yeah, that's right. That's what Frydenberg said last week. He said you've got you've now got seven point five million people on on on, on employment welfare, either job keeper yeah. or job seeker. Seven and a half million. That's sixty yeah. percent of the workforce. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, now I, I, I dispute what. Cole has said because I don't think everyone on JobKeeper would be on the dole because some of those people are working and are being subsidised. It's unclear how many people are essentially being paid to stay at home, but that sort of gives you a maximum scale of the problem. Yeah, well, it was a bit of dramatic licence there, but it certainly uh, the, the point is we, we it certainly yeah who would have thought, but it is certainly true that uh, more than half of the workforce is being Seven and paid directly by the government. Yeah, <laughs> out of a thirteen million strong labour force. All right, look, it's been an absolutely fabulous discussion talking through all of these issues of uh, of the pandemic, the public health decisions, the economic ramifications and the politics. I've absolutely loved it. Uh, so thanks so much to Vanessa Johnston. Thanks, Mark. It's been great. Thank you to you, Phil Curry. Yeah, no worries, Mark. And terrific always to have you along, Maria Tafliger. Yes, thanks very much, guys. See you next week.
And uh, keep your eye out for a very special first-person account of COVID from Inside the Beast on Democracy Sausage Extra later this week. And until then, bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.